So, there are a lot of very good questions that we can ask in life. If we're an existentialist, we might ask, what is the, how can I establish a purpose for my life, meaning? If we are inclined towards science pursuits, we are interested in the, I suppose, the laws and regulations that govern the movement and activity of natural, I'm bullshitting here, but whatever, natural <laughs> events, something, you'd be doing something that sounded important and be asking important questions about that shit. And uh, if you were theologically inclined, you'd be asking about what is the nature of God or gods? Uh, if you were politically or socially engaged, you would ask, how can I change the world for the better? All these are really valid and important questions. Uh, for those of us that are uh, interested in the teachings of the Buddha and his spiritual path, the most important questions is what are the nature or what is the nature of suffering and what relieves it. So uh, this question can be furthermore, if we want to tackle it in one way, we could break it down to what kinds of suffering in life are inevitable that we can't do anything about that the job is simply to experience, but trying to change it, get rid of it, react, resist, avoid, is a total waste of time, because you're going to have these experiences. And there's a second set of discomfort, stress, suffering, misery, that is entirely... Uh, avoidable that we bring about by our own volitional actions and thoughts and so rather than simply accept these this second set of uh, suffering agitation discomfort there's something that we can do about it so the other question would be how the hell do we tell the two apart? And what do we do about the suffering that we have some control over? So I'm going to try to give you your money's worth tonight and answer these questions. These questions go to the heart of so much of human uh, recovery, psychology, spiritual endeavor. In 1941, the first 12-step book um, published the Serenity Prayer, which beseeches uh, a God for the serenity to accept what we cannot change, the courage to change what we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So those are those three questions again. In 1950s, one of the great American psychologists, Albert Ellis, 
one of the founders of both rational and cognitive behavioral therapy, and uh, one of just uh, considered to be one of the most influential American uh, psychologists, posited what he called his ABC model, and that goes, uh, to put it simply, a little bit like this. In life, there are actions over which we have no control, and then we have a set of beliefs that create our interpretations and reactions, which we can control, and the result is C, suffering. So, <laughs> Ellis said, well, let me give you an example of that. You're at a, uh, you're on a date, God forbid. <laughs> you're on a date and uh, you, in an effort to make yourself seem uh, a winning personality, establish that you have just a lovely sense of humor and a brimming, upbeat character. Uh, you try to say an amusing story, and when you're finished, your date just gives you an inscrutable smile. You don't know them. You have no way of knowing whether they are thinking, oh, that's funny, or what the fuck am I doing with this person on this date? You have no way to read it. So what happens is you're beliefs kick in and those create interpretations. You either read that inscrutable half smile as, oh shit, I totally blew it, or, oh, that could be a approving smile. You're walking down the street and you see a friend, you wave, they don't wave back, even though it looks like they see you. <laughs> if you're in a good mood and you're self beliefs are in a very upbeat mode, you might interpret it as, oh, they didn't see me, or oh, I know they're my friend and they've got stuff on their mind, so they didn't notice. On the other hand, if you're in a spiral of shame and low self-esteem, <laughs> you'll interpret their lack of response as, fuck, now they don't like me. What the fuck did I do anyway? Fuck you! Maybe you wouldn't think that, though. You get the idea. So, um, Ellis said that one of the great wastes of time is that we blame C, our suffering, on A, the actual external events, and we don't see the role that B, our interpretations and our beliefs, play in creating suffering. Similarly, as we'll see, the Buddha... 2,400 years earlier said the exact same thing. The Buddha, when he set out the noble truths, if you look at the first noble truth from a certain light, you could read it very easily as a list of many of the inevitable experiences we will have in life that will cause us discomfort. It's almost a list of the stuff that's going to happen universally in life that we have very little control over. He starts out with aging, sickness, death, and then the emotional responses that arise, the grieving, 
sorrow, and then the other experiences such as being separated from those we love and being united with people we don't love so much and uh, the frustrations of not getting what we want. So these are things that are going to happen. But then the Buddha goes on to say that there's a second kind of suffering that comes from the way we react to these uh, universal experiences. What we do is we resist. We want life to be other than it is. We want an inoculation from any form of pain. We don't want to grow old. We don't want to experience separation or rejection or frustrations or setbacks or any of the, uh, the inevitable events. We want to be uh, the exceptions to the rule. We don't want to have that happen to us. And in our reactions, we crave for distractions and sensual pleasures that will make us feel good, even though they only last for short term. They don't get rid of the pain, and they leave us feeling even more agitated. So, one of the great suttas I'm going to use to explain this is uh, known as the Salatha, the Arrow Sutta, and it really goes really deeply into this question. The Buddha says that, and he's using in this sutta as his example, which will start out with physical pain, and he says that both the uninstructed, somebody who has no spiritual practice whatsoever, and the instructed, somebody who's got a lot of spiritual experience, they've been developing meditation, they have a lot of insight, both of those people will experience pain in life. Say both people at the same time bend down to pick up something and their back goes out, and they're in pain. Both will experience it. No matter how much spiritual practice you got, it's not going to make you immune from pain. I'm sorry to tell you that, but it's going to happen. So you're going to experience the pain, but at this point, their paths diverge significantly. The uninstructed become anxious, resisted, obsessed. The pain of two arrows are felt. The first arrow being the pain itself the second arrow being all the agitation of the anxiousness, the resistance, the obsession, the clinging to uh, something that will relieve it creates agitation. On the other hand, the well-instructed don't become anxious, don't resist, don't obsess or seek immediate pleasure to get rid of it. So, just like Albert Ellis said, Basically, we have the same experience, which is A, the pain, but B, the understanding of it, that it's inevitable, that the instructed, wise person has, changes the way they interpret the pain. The first person will go, what the fuck, who left this down on the ground? Why is the ground so far from my feet? Why didn't somebody pick this up for me? Yeah. It's unfair. 
you stub your toe, we, we might get... You ever stub your toe and they get angry at the wall or the door? <laughs> Who put this day? Um, so, the Buddha is clearly listing pain in the first group of stuff we have no control over. Now, in other lists, he also very clearly considers the emotional pain in, that arises after difficult experiences uh, as inevitable as well. I'll give you an example. You break up with somebody, they break up with you, whatever, I don't know. It's not my story, it's yours. I'm just... No, actually, it's my story. So you, they broke up with you. I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, so they broke up with you. You go on Facebook. You're stalking them. All right. You have a little bit of a journey left on your path. And you're stalking them. And you immediately see a picture of them and what looks like it could be a new date, new romantic encounter. And there's that, that feeling like you've been punched in your stomach, a nausea in your throat, a feeling of the chest being hollowed out. There's just this feeling of just, just this emotional, raw pain. And that Vedana, the sense of resisting in the body, pushing it away, not wanting it to be there, the mind fixating and all that, that is going to be inevitable too. When the list in the way we can stop the chain of suffering the Buddha put the break right after that. He said, right up until, you know, God emotions and the external events that we contact, all this stuff is inevitable, but there's this, there's this discontinuation where we can stop all the suffering that arises afterwards, that feeling of, this is wrong, they have no right to go out with anybody else after me. They should know that there's a four-month period where you don't post photos of yourself with somebody else. They should quit Photoshop after they break up with me. So we add all this. And then there's the craving of it to be different and the visualizations. Oh, when the next time I see them, I'm going to have such a cutting remark prepared, which I'm going to start drafting right now. <laughs> so, uh, so that's all the voluntary parts. So to summarize, the, in, the stuff that you're going to experience that you have very little control over is all the events of the body, the external shit that people do that you could not have foreseen, the um, emotional pain that arises immediately that it's actually part and parcel of the amygdala and it's pre-conscious. It just arises faster than thought. So you've got no control over this stuff. Now the Buddha did provide a list though, of what comprises the things that we can control and it breaks down primarily into three things. The, he said the first is how we focus or what we place our attention on. We have a choice on what the mind focuses on. That's called attention. 
And the Buddha said that's one of the three things we can control. So at any given moment, you're at a party, the ex walks in, and the normal untrained thing to do is to drop awareness of everybody else you're talking to and immediately turn into the suffering radar of what are they doing, 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 yep, they're an asshole, they're an asshole, they're an asshole, there they are now, I don't like them any more now than I did. So that attention has just becomes fixated on one thing, and we have a choice about that. We can learn to train the mind so that when discomforting events arise, we can focus elsewhere. So many of the Buddha's great suttas, the sabhasava, in other words, talk about restraining the senses, which simply means focusing on something else. If it's too domineering and you have to have partial awareness of it, for example, body pain, you can at least become aware of other parts of the body that are not in pain. So the resistance that we have when parts of the body come in pain, we can, we can, in our awareness, open it. So how you focus the mind is under your control. The pain itself is not, but how you focus the mind is. Now, the second thing he talked about is what he called sana or perceptions, and that can also be just thought of, is the way you directly interpret what's going on. Albert Ellis's interpretations that turn into suffering that are created by um, your beliefs. Basically, the way you interpret something, the way you immediately add a little story, put it into, this is bad, this is good, this should be different, that story we add on, this is wrong, immediately changes the way we experience, and we have control over that. One of the famous uh, 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 lessons that um, Ajahn Brahm gives is he talks about the example of somebody who goes to the doctor who uh, has not meditated on the body and doesn't realize that it is something that is meant to break down over time. And he said, those people go to the doctor and they say, Doc, there's something wrong my leg, my back hurts, etc. But somebody who has a long-term practice, Ajahn Brahm says, goes to the doctor and they might even say, Doc, something right's happening. Because the body is feeling pain and that's what bodies do. So we don't add that story of that perception of this is wrong, this shouldn't be happening. And just that that immediate label that we affix, that this is wrong, this should be different, immediately creates so much more resistance and stress and misery than when we simply say, this is the way life is. Just that subtle change can make such a huge difference. And then, finally, there are the intentions, the inclinations, what we want to do about it. So we focus the mind, we've interpreted it and what's going on, and then we have an inclination to do something about it. We want to run away, we want to avoid it, we want to uh, figure out a way to make it go away. All of those resistance plans create so much mental agitation and frustration when they don't work. Because again, we're talking about so many of these 
times we're focusing our intentions and our interpretations on shit that just happens, that's unavoidable, that's universal. So, the Sutta continues that the wise stay calm without resistance. They see pain arising and passing, the allure, the drawback, and the escape, whereas the uninstructed don't. So why is it that the uninstructed don't see some of these sufferings as they are, as universal? The answer is very simple. When a reaction comes up that's very strong and very fast, that means it's controlled by your survival instincts. The faster and the more powerful it is, the stronger the urge, the more you are in the presence of a survival instinct. What does that mean? That means, again, it's controlled by pre-conscious regions of the brain. They're faster than thought. When we are in the midst of a survival instinct, it does a couple of things. One, it makes everything seem like it's happening to us. When you're in the presence of a threat, you naturally think, oh shit, this is happening to me, I better do something. If you're on a street and a car jumps a curb and you have a survival instinct to get out of the way, yes, your brain is going to interpret as, holy shit, this thing is heading towards me, I've got to do something to survive. It makes sense that you take it personally. <laughs> At that situation, you wouldn't want to say, well, this, is, this could be viewed as a universal experience. <laughs> That's not very useful or helpful. <laughs> the second thing it does is, uh, because it makes things very personally, we, of course we lose the quality of the, the universe. Uh, when, when there's no threat present, then when a survival instinct kicks in, then it can very easily turn something that is universal into something that feels very personal. For example, you're uh, in a... uh, the same situation, you're in a job conversation, you say something, your boss who's nude gives you a blank face. You don't know how to read it. That's a universal experience, but... If you have your survival instinct kick in, you can take it very personally. They don't like me. Why aren't they laughing? Why aren't they appreciating me? The more the survival instinct kicks in, the more we view things as threats, the more not only we take them personally, the more permanent and the more essential it becomes to do something, the stronger the urge to react. So one of the tricks is when a very strong, powerful reaction arises, simply to ask, is this really a threat? Is this really a threat? And if it's not, then don't follow that urge. Because the chances are it's a needlessly triggered survival instinct, and it will still be available to you, but it's better to uh, consider other alternatives. The non-survival ideas, interpretations, 
will always come after the survival-based, I've got to get out of here, I've got to get rid of this, this is all about me, this is going to... The, 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 the feelings and urges that turn small discomforts into real life-threatening things, that's the first impulse, because those impulses are much faster than thought. So, the Buddha emphasizes that the key is seeing clearly. In that final list of what the wise person does, he says, um, the wise stay calm without resistance. They see pain arising and passing, and the allure drawback and escapes from suffering. So, the first part is what we do with the inevitable pains of life. We watch them we observe them, but we don't try to, if they're not life-threatening, we don't try to get rid of them, avoid them. We simply note them. We experience. We experience and feel the discomfort of loss. We experience and feel the frustrations of life. We experience and feel the uh, setbacks and rejections that happen in life. We open to life. We don't try to avoid it, run away from it, get rid of it, change it. The key is that the wise turn towards the experience. We don't run away from the inevitable pains. We focus, we attend, we observe. And what happens when we do this is a couple of things. We notice that they pass, and we realize that there's not as much we needed to do about them as we fear. If it's not truly life-threatening, all of the discomforts of life generally tend to pass or change. Even chronic pain, which seems like it's going to be something that lasts forever, constantly changes. Some days it's difficult, some days it's not. If we try to avoid it, we make it worse. If we turn towards pain and we open and we learn to relax and not resist it and we learn ways we can focus on different parts of the body, then it's far less discomforting, or what's the word I was looking for, uh, uncomfortable than we thought. Now, the second group, in terms of what do we do about the reactions, the Buddha says we notice the allure, the drawbacks, and the escapes. This is what's known as Yoniso Manasikara, appropriate attention. It's what we practice in Vipassana. So you can think of samadhi or concentration as the part of the meditation that we open with where we're just focusing on the anchors, the breath, the body. And what we're doing there is developing a sustained concentration that allows us, when we encounter the difficulties of life, to stay present, to observe, to not get caught up in reactions, to see what's present. But then the second part, the Vipassana, the open awareness or open monitoring, as it's called by neuroscientists, who refer to Vipassana as, oh, they can't use Vipassana to religious a term, so they call it open monitoring. Um, this is very, very useful in beginning to practice what the Buddha said is changing the way we react, noticing its drawbacks. So this is what we do. 
when we're caught up in a very strong reaction to something, the first thing we can ask is, what am I hoping to achieve here? Why? What is behind this urge, this activity? What am I trying to get out of it? What we're doing is we're finding the allure, why we're doing this. So, for instance, if we, somebody hasn't returned a phone call and we find the mind flooded with feelings or stories of, um, well, I return their phone call immediately, but they don't return my phone call. What the fuck? So you see all that, those thoughts, and you ask, okay, what am I trying to achieve with these thoughts? And you can, with a little bit of reflection, you might be able to see, well, behind this is a desire to feel better about myself, or B, it's trying to avoid feeling the sadness that this person I care about isn't returning my call. So you're noticing what you're trying to get from that reaction. Sometimes when we, ca- we catch ourselves in shopping binges or eating binges or sex binges, we can stop for a second and we can just say, okay, what is it I really want right now? Just really, what is it I'm really hoping for? And very often we'll see that it's not really the thing that we're focusing on, the sex or the drugs or the food. It's something else. I just don't want to feel that loneliness. I just don't want to, uh, I just don't want to think about that breakup. I just don't want to think about how much I hate my job. I just don't want to, what's really down there? And it's really important to get to know your intentions and your, your underlying motivations because that will come in handy when we figure out a way to give a better solution, to know what you're really after. The second part is what's the drawback? And that's pretty simple. Most of the time the drawback is, I'm suffering. You know, I'm thinking about that person who didn't return my phone call. My mind's filled with thoughts. I can't sleep. I can't focus on the good things in my life. I can't enjoy this dinner. I've just got this single fucking thought over and over again in my head. This really sucks. Okay, that's a drawback. That's what you call a drawback. It's replacing one discomfort, like, oh, my friend didn't return my call, doesn't feel good, with something worse. Oh, shit, I can't think about anything else. The story of the, the uh, Buddha with his trainee, which is actually not a Theravadan story, but I'll tell it anywhere, where the Buddha instructs his trainee and that... Uh, Male monks are not allowed to touch nuns or women. And then they're walking by a river, and the story goes that there is an old woman who's struggling to pass, and the Buddha immediately goes down and offers his assistant, and she agrees, and he carries her across. And so he walks with the student for another half an hour, and finally the student says, Hey, now wait a second, Buddha. <laughs> You just, you just finished off telling me how you're not supposed to touch a woman, and there you were carrying her across. And the Buddha says, well, I put 
her down a half an hour ago and you're still carrying it around. And that's the nature of our reactions. That's the nature of the drawbacks of our reactions. They stay in the mind. They tense us up. The more we think, the more we trigger ourselves, the more we become tight, the more we release cortisol, the more we become agitated. That's the drawback. So there's always a goal. I don't want to feel something. I don't want to... uh, I don't want to experience something. I want to make something go away. I want to control something. And then there's always the, the reaction that we have and its drawback. And then the third part is, what could I do that's different? How could I approach this experience differently? Sometimes the answer can be creative. Can I replace these thoughts with forgiveness thoughts to the person who hasn't return my call, or meta-thoughts to them, or meta-thoughts to myself. May I feel true ease and happiness. Maybe the alternative might be to turn towards the discomfort and breathe into it, and just hold it, and reassure it that it won't last forever, holding our experience like an infant that you cared about. Maybe we'll reflect on times in life when we were peaceful or times in life when we didn't return somebody's call. Sometimes we'll reflect on something that... uh, Sometimes we might reflect on things that they did for us out of the blue that were kind, that we didn't expect. The key is to finally find some kind of thought or reaction that doesn't cause papancha or lots of proliferation of thoughts and obsessions, but to find a way to react that will make the mind stiller and calmer, make the body more relaxed and peaceful. That's what we're after. There's a lot of room for creativity here. You can experiment, but the more we attach to the first impulse that arises, the more we run with it as if it's absolutely natural and believe the stories that everything that's happening is personal about me, the more we will trap ourselves in habitual ruts that will become more and more difficult to release. The more, on the other hand, we turn towards the inevitable challenges of life and we open to them, and then we investigate What am I after? What's the drawbacks? And what could I do differently? The more we can disentangle what Albert Ellis called the beliefs that cause suffering and turn them into what Albert Ellis called the beliefs that bring about ease. In Ellis's view, all those beliefs are rational. (laughs) I'm not sure that's always the case, but in general, the key is find a way to turn towards life that won't create even more suffering. So I thank you for listening. I hope there was something worthwhile in there. For those of you who do uh, take this time before the questions to leave, if you can uh, donate so that we can pay the rent, that's really important because it's not always that easy for us. So I thank you for that.